You know, um, throughout my life, I have never been called or considered a brave person. I've never been a huge risk taker. My mom never once had to worry about me jumping off a bridge if all my friends did. Like I'd, I'd just say, nope, not doing that. I don't care if everybody else in my school went, not going to do it. Um, I've always had friends, though, who were that kind of leap first, figure out where to land kind of people. Um, they always kind of did stuff, whether it was for the experience or for the story. And um, I just never did that kind of thing. I never followed along. I was never that guy. But I love watching other people do things that are dangerous and dumb. Um, in college, I lived on a floor with about 25 to 30 other guys, uh, depending on the semester. And a lot of them, you, know, you get a good mix of people, a lot of them love doing crazy things that were either dumb or dangerous. And I always was right there giving my full support, uh, trying to talk people into doing those dumb things. Um, there was one time a guy named Nate got convinced to go out in the, the church lawn, or the church lawn, the lawn besides our, our dorm, actually, and um, to run while two other guys tried to shoot him with paintball guns. He was convinced, I think I'm fast enough to outrun you guys shooting me. He wasn't. Um, he got covered in welts. Um, and I was right there, yeah, Nate, you can do it. Try it, buddy. I think you got this. You know, I was right there egging it on, encouraging it all the way. Um, and that's the fun. Everyone, everyone knew he wasn't going to make it. Everyone knew he was going to get pelted. Um, but, you know, we're all like, yeah, buddy, would I have done it? Absolutely not. I don't want that for me. I'm not going to volunteer. But by golly, I'll have a front row seat to watch. Um, another shenanigan that I don't even remember technically how this started, so I'll say that it was in the name of science, but me and my roommate got to wondering, how bad can milk go? Like, we've all had, you know, you've all pulled that gallon of milk out and out of your fr fridge, you know, and poured a little bit, and nope, there's something wrong about that. But we're like, okay, but what if you just let it go bad? Because usually you dump it down the drain at that point, right? The first hint of something awry, you dump, get rid of it. And so we kept a gallon of milk in our room for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. It was like a third of a gallon, I should say, but it was in a gallon jug. And it got to where we'd have to vent it every day because the gallon was starting to swell. And we didn't want it to blow up in our room. And so, and my roommate would smell it. He'd be like, oh my gosh, this is getting bad. And like anything else, you've done this before. You've smelled something, oh, that's terrible. Here, you smell it. Like, you've done that, right? And he would go, so he got to where he'd take this gallon out the floor and say, guys, you've got to smell this thing. And everybody on our floor who smelled it, and I mean, we got dozens and dozens of people to smell this thing. They always had an immediate involuntary bodily reaction, like an uncontrolled response to the smell rising into their nasal cavities. Sometimes it was like a gag. Sometimes it was a retch. Sometimes it was like the full body like shudder. It was usually some combination of the three. But I mean, it was every single person. I don't know how many people I talked into smelling that thing. I never smelled it. Not once did I ever smell this gallon. Now, some people might say, Anthony, that's mean. That makes you mean, Anthony. And I would say, I think it makes me smart. Because I didn't get hurt. I never had to suffer. I, but I got all the joy of watching other people suffer through those moments. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I, as much as I'd like to consider myself smart, the real reason is that, again, I'm not a brave person. I'm more of a naturally fearful person. I don't want to smell that. I fear that reaction and the way it might have turned my stomach. I didn't want to be there for that. Um, I feared getting shot by paintballs. 
Um, I feared getting in trouble or getting hurt from all the other dumb stuff that people were doing. And so rather than just, you know, going along, I just thought I'd talk people into it and still get some of the fun of it. Now, the thing about fear is that it's such an interesting emotion. Um, of all the ones that we've talked about so far, it's the most necessary, okay? We've been talking about these different emotions that can kind of take the driver's seat of your life. We've talked about guilt and anger, um, and we talked about envy last time. But fear is a little bit different in that there is a huge part of fear that you need, okay? A fearless person is going to have a rougher life than people who have fear in their life. Okay, fear is a normal thing. Um, it keeps us safe. It keeps us out of dangerous situations. Um, fear is one of those things that's a part, it's kind of the base behind our, our fight or flight response. You know, it gets your adrenaline pumping so that if you're in a dangerous situation, you can hopefully swing your way out of it or get your little legs to cooking and run your way out of it. That's just what it does. It's good for us. But as much as it is a necessary thing, not an evil or a bad thing, it was never meant to be the emotion that gets kind of in the driver's seat of our lives, that takes control of what we are, who we are, that influences our decisions. And so with the exception of last Sunday, we've been in this series called From Within, where we're looking at the emotions that live inside of us, that when they take control of our lives, when they grab our hearts and, and kind of start to run the show, they really lead us to do bad things, hurtful things, sometimes dangerous things or destructive things. And so today, we're going to be talking about fear. And as I would, you know, still often as an adult consider myself a fearful person, the main way that that has shown up in my adult life is anxiety, which is like pre-fear. It's like anticipation of fear. It's, in, it's, it's fear of what may be, what might be. And I have a theory. I don't know if this is true or not. I think people who are the most anxious have the most active imaginations, because we can just sit there and imagine every possible horrible thing that could go wrong. We can invent crises that have never happened before. And it just, your brain takes over and lets you picture all of these things. And so fear is kind of, uh, the, it, it's over all of the what ifs that might happen in your life most often. Now sometimes you do have things in your, in your life that there are kind of seem bad and you can fear them. But I think most of the time fear shows up, it's that anticipation of what might go wrong. And fear in the form of anxiety has kind of haunted me my entire adult life. And again, as good as fear is keeping you from danger and getting hurt, it was never meant to be the primary emotion that ran your life. Um, I remember a few years ago, it's been more than a few now, because I think Jude was four, and we went, we took him to see for his first time in a movie theater, Inside Out. You know, and they've got the five different emotions that um, live in your heart. Which, by the way, that's not scientific or spiritual or anything. They just picked five. Like, I watched the making of. They had other emotions that, like, they were spitballing to be one of the main that wandered around inside that little girl's head, right? And so they, with the way they depicted the brain was, like, there was a giant control board. And given the situation, a different emotion would get up and kind of take the controls, right? And fear, for the most of the story, was in the back seat, Okay, but for a lot of us, fear is the one that has the controls most of the time. And so fear was never meant to be that way. Because when it's in charge, fear keeps you from doing things that are absolutely necessary. 
Because your, your fear of what might happen will keep you from doing what you need to do oftentimes. Fear will keep you from obeying God many times because, let's just be honest, sometimes to grow, we got to do things that are a little outside our comfort zone, things that we register as scary. Okay, uh, when I asked the kids, for, uh, asked Harper last week initially to get up and read a verse at the service, and uh, she was like, yeah. And then when I asked her again to do it today, she was like, uh... Maybe. And I asked Jude, and he was like, yeah, let me talk to Harper and see if she'll read it with me. And then Harper said yes, and then Jude's like, well, I don't want to do it now. And I said, okay. James, do you want to do it? And he's like, I don't know, maybe. And then this morning, he's like, I don't want to do it. You know, so, I mean, that, they, like, there's times when, like, it's good for us to do these things that help serve God and step us out of it. I hated preaching for, like, three years. I mean, I knew I should do it, and there was joy and satisfaction and, and following and obeying God. But the physical act of stepping on stage in front of people... It was, I mean, almost miserable for like three years. And, uh, you know, so sometimes there's times where God is calling us in a direction that will be scary. And if fear is what we let drive our life, we're never going to be the people that he's called us to be. And then other times there's things God's going to give into our lives to be a blessing and a joy. And we're not going to be able to appreciate the moment we're in because we're too busy worrying about what might never happen later. And so as somebody and as a Christian who, who looks into Scripture and, and thinks, okay, hopefully, as uh, you know, God's got something to say about all this fear and anxiety that kind of lives in my heart sometimes, and lucky for us and lucky for me, it does, and one of, because one of the most com common commands in the entire Bible, one of the most repeated statements over and over again in the Bible is, do not fear, often showing up as fear it's, it's weird uh, how Bible translation works in that most of the time it shows up in like the, either the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's the same phrase. They just translate it one or the other depending on the way the sentence needs to flow kind of thing, right? But so most of the time when you read do not fear or fear not, it's the same command over and over again. It shows up um, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament like 70 different times. Do not fear. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. And and let me tell you, I read this, and I find it entirely unhelpful, okay? Because if you've ever been nervous about something, and you're like, man, I'm really nervous, and, and somebody who does not deal with that is like, what are you nervous about? And you tell them, and they're like, oh, that's, that's silly. Don't worry about that. You're like, well, thank you. If only I had thought of just to not worry about that. Fantastic advice. You fixed my life, and now I can go home happy. Like, it doesn't help when someone just says, don't worry. And so, don't fear. That, when I read this initially, it just doesn't really seem that helpful. Um, because few things are less helpful than just telling somebody, hey, don't feel that way anymore. When you would love to not feel that way anymore. And so, even though at the outset, this feels not helpful. And I've read it a lot of times and found it not helpful. Um, what is interesting, though, is the fact that it shows up so much reveals something to us. It tells us that maybe God doesn't want us to live a life of fear. Maybe God doesn't want you walking through every single day riddled with anxiety, carrying the weight of fear and anxiety and what-ifs, and run, letting your brain run 90 miles an hour all the time, inventing new scenarios for how your life could go badly. God doesn't want that for you. And, and so even though, again, I say, I look at this initially and say, oh, don't worry, that doesn't help, don't fear, that doesn't help, there's more, that, that tells me, the fact that it's repeated over and over again tells me that there's got to be more going on here. There's more that God wants us to know and understand and internalize than just, don't worry about it. And so, 
We're going to dig in a little bit here um, this morning in Matthew chapter 10. If you want to grab a Bible, feel free. If you want to use your Bible app on your phone, you can do that. The verses will be on the screen. Uh, Matthew chapter 10. Um, if you don't know, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Our New Testament starts with four different biographies of Jesus. We call them Gospels. And there are four different perspectives on the life of Jesus. And Matthew was one of the closest 12 people that Jesus spent his time with on his, during his earthly ministry. He called them apostles. They were the ones kind of Jesus called together and, and charged to be the leaders in the church when he ascended into heaven after he had finished his earthly ministry. And so he was kind of spent this time preparing them to lead and carry on the work after he was gone. And um, one weird thing that can be confusing if you're reading the Bible uh, is that Matthew, like many other people, had more than one name. I don't know why. It, uh, part of it is the fact that um, there was all these cultures coming together, and so their name would be different in different languages. Um, but Matthew is sometimes called Levi. So if you're ever reading and you come across a Levi, like the genes, that's Matthew, same guy. Okay, and so Jesus wants to teach these guys, train these guys to be leaders in the church. And one of the things he did to train them um, in Matthew chapter 10 is he sent them out on like a trial run preaching tour where he said, I mean, you guys are going to go all over Israel. You're going to preach in different towns. You're going to do all the miracles that I've been doing. You're going to cast out demons. You're going to heal people who are sick from all kinds of things. Lepers are going to come to you and you're going to touch them and their skin's going to immediately be clean. You're going to raise people from the dead. You're going to do all these amazing miracles. And then you're going to come back and we're going to talk about it and work through it. Okay. And before Jesus sends them out on this kind of test trial run preaching tour, he sits them down and he starts going to, through what they should do and what they should expect. And one big chunk of this is him telling them how dangerous this is going to be. Now, as you get into it, it becomes very clear that he's not just telling them what they're going to encounter on this little trial run preaching tour, but he's kind of preparing them for what life is going to be like after he's not with them anymore. This is like what it's going to be like to be a Christian in a world that doesn't understand Christianity. And so there's a little bit there that becomes very applicable to us. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus tells them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now we read that and we're like, ooh, sheep among wolves. That sounds like a fancy way to say it's going to be dangerous. And that's what we think. But they would have had a much more visceral word picture or word or mind image from that, okay? They were around sheep all the time. There were Shepherds walking sheep around all the time. They saw wolves wandering here and there. And they occasionally, while they were traveling from place to place, came upon a sheep that got separated from the rest of its herd and caught up with a pack of wolves. And all that's left by a sheep that gets caught by a pack of wolves is bones and bloody wool. Like, the, the, the wolves don't come up and say and intimidate the sheep and then go on their merry way. Like, the sheep does not stand a chance. And so Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. They would immediately have pictured that carcass of a sheep that they ran across and said, oh, that poor thing, it never stood a chance. And their eyes probably widened and they probably leaned back a little bit and thought, wait a minute, what are we doing? I thought we were going to heal people and do cool things. What's that? Wait, what's going on now? This is a different, this is different than what I had expected. And then he goes on to be more direct in verse 17. 
He says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them to the Gentiles. You guys are going to be arrested, thrown in jail. Sometimes you're going to be beaten. This is like, okay, yeah, I, I thought that's what you were trying to tell me with the wolves and the sheep thing. You Okay, yeah, I was hoping I was wrong, but nope, now you're making it real clear. And so, like, they, he says that sometimes it would be flogged. Flogging is a term that could mean a couple different things. Uh, on the lighter end, it would mean being beaten with, like, these flexible rods. Like, think, like, skinny bamboo or a dowel rod from Lowe's. You know, something that could welt your skin. Um, sometimes even break the skin if you were hit it hard enough and over and over again enough. Um, on the worst end, it, it could mean being beaten with what was called a cat of nine tails, which was like a handle with a bunch of pieces of leather coming off of it. And on each one of these straps of leather would be like a, a broken piece of pottery or a hook or uh, sometimes broken bones that were sharp. And they would beat you and it would cut and dig into your flesh and then they would pull it off and it would rip your flesh. And so he's saying, you're going to go out and this is what awaits you as you go out into the world. Sometimes he says you're going to be dragged in front of powerful leaders, kings and rulers. These are people who have the power to execute you and no one will say boo about it. No one will say, hey, we shouldn't have done that because they're the top dog and they have the authority to do that. Where you're going is dangerous. And then he goes on to say that living for him will cost some of these people their closest relationships. Verse 21, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so he starts talking about being attacked, being beaten and arrested, being disowned, having your own family, not just disown you, but turn on you and turn you over to endure these horrible things like being beaten and all of that stuff. And I would reckon that at least one of these guys was heavily reconsidering whether or not they were on board for this little preaching tour at this particular moment. I'm sure as Jesus talked, their eyes just got wider and wider and wider. And they're thinking, "What? wait, what's going to happen now? I thought we were sharing you and talking about the kingdom of God and proclaiming the good, the good news, Jesus. That's all bad, bad news. And I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I'm on board anymore. And then a few verses later, down in verse 28, we come across that really unhelpful command, and do not fear. Well, that's easy for you to say. You're sending us to be the sheep among the wolves. You're sending us to go out and endure all those horrible things. You're going to stay here, Jesus. Like, what? That's easy. Do not fear. It's sound after, again, that horrible list of things that he just kind of mounted up for them. Here's all the bad things that are going to happen, but don't worry about it. Okay, that sounds totally like a ridiculous thing to say. And he goes on and he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus is saying that when the people come to kill you and all these things are happening, you still don't have to fear because you're going to be in the middle of of this situation that's horrible and bad, and you're going to find, like, not, not only wondering if bad things are going to happen, he says, these things are going to happen to you. He says, but still, you don't have to be afraid. And he, he takes this statement, don't be afraid, and he follows it up with a statement that is designed to help them zoom out and have a bigger, wider perspective on the world. Because 
When you're afraid, what happens is you can't see past the thing you're scared of. It looks like the worst thing in the world. It looks like the only thing in the world. And he says, yes, these things are bad, but zoom out and there's a bigger picture at stake. And so he tries to help them see a few things. He wants them to see, one, that there is more to life than just this life. He says, if every one of these people do the absolute worst to you, the worst thing that's going to happen to you is you will die. And they're like, yeah, kill me, Jesus. And he says, but there is more to your existence than this life. They can kill your body, but they can't kill the part of you that really makes you you. He's like, so even if they take everything away from you in this life, there is still more life waiting for you beyond their power. So he wants them to zoom out beyond their fears and see a bigger picture. And the second thing he wants to see them or help them see is that every fear that seems so overwhelming and so scary to you, it is tiny compared to the power of your God. It has nothing compared to the power of your God. They can kill your body. God can take care and do more scary and more dangerous things than that. And he wants them to understand that, yes, people can hurt us, accidents can kill us, diseases can destroy our bodies, but their power is all limited to this life. And God's power to carry us beyond this stuff is still very, very strong. <clears throat> In fact, think about the ministry Jesus did and the ministry that he's giving these men to go out on when they go to preach. He cast out demons. He took people who were sick, some of them sick for years and years and years, and he healed them with a word or a prayer or a touch. He took people who had died, and their family members had thought, all hope is lost. This is the worst moment that could have ever happened. And he grabs them by the hand, and they stand back to life again. Jesus was showing people, I have more power than the worst thing that could ever happen to you. That, that disease, yeah, it can do all these things, but I can just wipe those things away with the touch of my hand. My power is greater than the power of anything bad that could ever happen to you. And he grants that power to his apostles as they go out into the world. And so in the midst of this, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, they were also going to be demonstrating God is bigger than your fears. God is bigger than every boogeyman hiding in your closet. God is bigger than all of those things. And so we don't need to fear. And that a life where Jesus is truly in charge, the life that he's setting up for us beyond this life, is a life where there is no sadness or crying or death or pain. There is no sickness or hospitals. There is nothing bad that could ever touch us in the life beyond this life. And so the life Jesus is giving people hints of when he walks around and heals and casts out demons and all of that is the life where there truly is never a need to fear. And we kind of have to take some steps to understand that, but the people that he's, the, the men that he's saying these words to, they would have understood exactly what he meant. And in fact, the reason why Jesus ended his ministry with his death and his resurrection was to help get us beyond this life. And so the hope of a Christian is not that this life, I hope we can have some good days in the midst of all the bad days. No, the hope is that I can't wait till the day when bad days are a distant memory because of good, the goodness of Jesus. And then he goes on. So after he talks about how big God is and how powerful God is, he goes on. He says, and are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And we're like, I don't know, are they? Like, we don't know. I've never, you bought a sparrow? Anybody? I mean, we live in a, the part of the country where if anybody's going to have bought a sparrow, it probably is somebody around here. But, but we say, I don't know. But they would have known. Sparrows were um, a common um, some bird you could buy in the market for poor people to buy food. It was kind of like, 
cheap. It was a, a bird that didn't have a lot of meat on it. That's why it was so cheap. But it was a kind of a food reserve for the poor. And so everybody would have seen them selling these. So it'd be like him saying, isn't gas this much a gallon? Like, they would have been, like, they would have known the price, okay? And so he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? But he's basically saying, this is, think of that little thing over there that's insignificant. That you don't even pay too, like, any attention to when you walk through the market. Isn't that sold for two pennies? He says, and not a one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Meaning God knows every second of their life. He counts every breath of those little birds that you count as nothing. He says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. There it is again. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So he says, if your heavenly father can care about the every minute of every day of those insignificant little birds, how much do you think he cares about you? How much, how much more? If he watches everything they're going through, don't you think he understands your problems and your fears and the thing? Don't you think he knows about... The, the disease you're going to get before you get it? Don't you think he knows how you're going to die before you die? Don't you think he knows every second of your life and what you're going to go through and the help you're going to need? Of course he does. He knows everything about your life. And he says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. What's interesting is the way this is written in the original Greek, it's, a, it's something that's already happened, but it has ongoing implications, almost as if God keeps a running tally of the number of hairs on your head throughout your entire life. So you can say, okay, God, when I'm 43 years and two months old and five days, how many hairs will I have? And he will know it. Okay, when I'm 18 and three days, how many hairs? And he would know that too. Okay, some of our counters probably look like a, a countdown to something. I don't know. I'm, I have less than I ever had, and it's getting lower every day. Except for my ears, they're thriving. Um, but... But, but, but again, hair is something that is kind of an insignificant thing in this culture. Like, if, you, if a guy lost his hair in the ancient world, what are they going to do about it? Nothing. You accept it and you move on. You don't know how many hairs. Nobody sits time counting their hairs. Why? Because they fall out, they go away. You go on with life. That's just the way it was. And so he says, if God knows how many hairs you have and something so small about you, such a small detail that no one would ever care to know. Like, no, like you hear... Um, Little kids bragging in school. My dad can beat up your dad. Well, I got this many Legos. And I got, none of them's like, well, I got more hair. I got, I got this many hairs on my head. Nobody knows it. Nobody cares how many hairs you have. And so he's saying, if God knows that insignificant detail about you, of course he cares about the stuff that's big and important to you. You are more valuable than the insignificant birds, and you're more valuable than anything you think. And so Jesus is trying to say that if God's going to keep track of that, he's going to be there knowing every obstacle that you're ever going to face in your entire life. And the reason he does it is because you are valuable to him. That's a way to say that he loves you very, very, very much. He cares about you. So there's been a lot that's been said. Let's put it all together. So Jesus lets us know that in him we have a better life beyond this life. The stuff we fear is limited to this life and cannot follow us to that next life. But even now, while we're going through all that scary stuff, we have a God who is more powerful than anything that could ever seek to harm us or cause us sadness or pain. And that powerful God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And so what he's trying to say to us, what he wants us to understand, and what makes this command, fear not, actually matter is that with our loving, powerful God, we have nothing to fear. That's the truth. 
But for a person who, again, is scared all the time, that can feel a little bit helpful. It's almost as if like my brain knows that, but my heart doesn't. My chest doesn't when it feels tight and I'm starting to worry about stuff and my stomach is all in knots. My head knows it, but I can't seem to get that through to the rest of my body. And it might be one of these things that does not set into our hearts right away. Uh, you see, the Bible is what's known as meditation literature, meaning it's, it's something that we're supposed to spend a lifetime in. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is we take a long time to be reshaped and reformed. If you've ever been like, man, I've been a Christian for a long time and I still do this. I've, I've got this sin over my head for a long time. A long time. Why can't I get it? Man, I've, I've had anger over my head for a long time. Why does it take so long for me to get my hand, a hand over this problem? It's because we take a long time to be formed and shaped and remade into the image of Jesus. It's a, it's a lifetime of work. And the way fear sometimes works in our lives, it prevents us from internalizing, believing, resting in the truth of God because our fear is too busy spitting out lies and made-up scenarios for what might and so to meditate on this stuff is it means that we read, read it, and we spend time almost preaching the truth to ourselves. So maybe you're sitting there having morning coffee and you, you're nervous about what the day's going to come. And so you say, no, 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 okay. With my good and loving and powerful God, I have nothing to fear. And you let that truth from Scripture just sit with you for a minute. And as you do things like that over and over again, days after day, day after day, month after month, year after year, the truth of Scripture works in your heart through the Holy Spirit to start replacing those bad ways of thinking and those lies and start pushing it out and replacing it with the truth of God. And so some of these truths will need to be meditated on over and over and over again. But we've got to remember that what we feel is often not the truth. That's why follow your heart. It sounds so good, but it is such dangerous advice. I have followed my heart into some really dumb choices before. You probably do too. I bet it'd be a hilarious like book if we all just had like one page to fill out a time we followed our heart to something dumb. We could make it anonymous. It'd be probably hilarious until someone starts making fun of your story. And you're like, yeah, it's mine. You know, but I might be dumb, but I'm not on page 43. You know, I'm page 43. You know, but um, but but this is what. We have to do sometimes because, uh, you know, as much as it, it's nice to come up here and preach a sermon and say, here's three things you do, fix your life, boom, on your way out the door. I don't think this is one of those. When you're struggling with something that has such sticking power as anxiety and fear, I think it's one of those you've got to play the long game. And the answer is simple, but doing it repetitively and meditating on it day after day after day and believing the truth, even when your feelings tell you something different, that is a difficult decision, but I, I really believe that over time, God changes our heart. I think he rewires our brains with his truth, and eventually we come to believe that, hey, I do have nothing to fear. And when you look at what happened to these guys, these 12 guys, soon to be 11, after Judas betrayed, they went out and they faced death. They stared death in the eye day after day, and people threatened them, we're going to kill you, and they just kind of went, okay. They said, don't you dare preach the gospel or I'm gonna, we're going to execute you. And like, okay. So anyway, everybody, about Jesus. And they just, they, they just didn't, they were fearless because 
once we get this into our thick skulls that our real life starts in the next life and this life is something we pass through and we're going to leave all these problems and pains and heartaches behind and excuse me and in Jesus we're going to make it to the next life when we truly get that we start to see there is nothing we have to fear and so eventually hopefully through meditation through coming back to scripture and its truth over and over again by speaking and preaching this message of truth against the lies that our hearts sometimes feel we will ultimately be able to take a deep sigh of peace and live out these words to fear not. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your truth. Fear seems to be something that's really tricky for a lot of us. We live in fear. We let fear direct our lives. It, it blinds us to your goodness and your grace and the opportunities you have for us. It sometimes just makes us stop and freeze in place when when maybe there's really nothing even going on. Father, most of the times in my life when I've been the most anxious about things, there were things that either weren't that bad when they happened or never happened in the, in the first place. And they've, I've wasted hours and hours living, letting my life be driven by the lies that my heart could tell. And I just pray that for anyone in this room who's like me or anyone listening online who's like me, that we would commit ourselves to being shaped by your truth and not by the fears of our heart, that we would be committed to revisiting and meditating on your truths so that our hearts would be shaped by your spirit, by your word, to be new, to be remade, to be people who can really look at, at life and these overwhelming things and say, I don't have any reason to fear because my God is with me. And he's more powerful than this and he loves me measurable love. And so, Father, help us to understand and help us to believe, even if we just get a taste of that freedom and that peace today, help us to believe that with you we have nothing to fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.